Helpful. There we go. We're starting a new sermon series today, Ephesians. Um, it's only six chapters. Uh, if you were here for our small group this morning, we actually read the book in its entirety today. So um, if, if you have literally 30 or 45 minutes, you can get through this entire book and know what's coming. You're probably thinking, wow, what a short passage. It's only two verses today. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but there's a, a great series of videos on YouTube, then. We're going to watch one of these now that kind of previews what the book is about. So I think it should be up now, if you want to cue it up. It'll be about nine minutes. Sit quietly and enjoy. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem, where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says, that grace has opened up a whole new nope. way Thank you. to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the Gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, 
God, in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus' resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled, and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new, unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time, he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus' new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people. But they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve the conflict. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth, is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect 
and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus' body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. Boom. Couldn't have said it better myself and wouldn't dare try. But that said, I'm going to try. <laughs> um, so we're starting small, and I hope you found that interesting, right? Uh, we actually had a conversation in our small group today about how sometimes the Bible is very daunting. That's putting it mildly. And sometimes it feels nigh impossible. I just, you can't figure it out. Um, when we read the entire book of Ephesians, uh, uh, it was Leah's suggestion to do so. What was very interesting was... All of these things that we just talked about here, we covered in about 30 minutes in Scripture. Not all of it perfectly clear. Paul sometimes writes in a manner that's a little bit confusing, requires you a time or two to get through. But when you see all these little passages that are oftentimes quoted and cited in the context of everything else that he's talking about, it really helps understand. It, it, rather, it, it makes it easier to understand exactly what Paul's talking about. It's not always, it may also be, but it's not always something esoteric and in, in general, sometimes it's very specific what he's talking about. And that's what we're going to address today, even in two verses. So if you've got your Bibles, great. If not, it'll be on the screen. Feel free to read along. Um, and it's nice and short with regards to what we have to read from the Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we dive into this relatively short passage of Scripture that is infinitely deep, as uh, you see it to be, um, I pray that we'll be able to put aside all the things that are going on out there in the world right now, the things that maybe are on our mind, uh, pulling us away from a time of, of peace, uh, keeping us maybe in a, in a slight bit of anxiety or nervousness, and, and obviously it's very busy today, Lord, as we look out these windows, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's a big deal. Uh, it's, it's a bustle out there. But Lord, I pray that we'll be able to take this time and, and commune with you. Um, be still and know that you are God. And we, we pray that you'll begin to, even in this small amount of time, relatively small amount of time, change our lives. Draw us closer to you. Let us know more about you as we study your word together. In your sense, I pray, amen. So I called the, the passage Christ Alone. And this theme, I guess you could probably cut quite honestly, name every single sermon that and be able to cover it this time. This book uh, 
is a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians that I just talked about. But what Paul is going to stress every single verse of this is it is about Jesus Christ. The, the fruits, the Christian marriage, all these things, the manner in which we did, all of this is only possible because of the work that Christ has done. So yes, two verses, sometimes less is more. Anybody ever heard that? That's usually what people say when they're trying to get away with doing very little. That's really not the case today. And, and I could easily preach five hours on these two verses. It's so deep what it begins. What Paul's opening up here is really a treasure trove of understanding about where we find our value and what grace and sacrifice and sanctification actually mean. I won't preach five hours, but I could. I'm just telling you, I could. But in these two verses, we see a clear priority, and that priority is Christ alone. So let's go through it together. It's a letter. It's from Paul. Uh, this is right here in the passage. He identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, some people would say, oh, he's already bragging he's an apostle, but this isn't a brag because he immediately says, it's not by his merit or his will, but rather by God's merit and will. If you know anything about Paul's history, his will prior to God intervening in his life was to see those who believed Jesus destroyed. He was killing, actively prosecuting, murdering Christians. His will was not to follow Jesus, was not to be part of this ministry, to not sh share the good news, not write letters to the church of Ephesus. His will was to destroy that which God made holy. In, his, in this case, he says, I've been made an apostle. Christ appeared to me. He made me an apostle, not by my will, but by the will of God. And an apostle to whom here? The Ephesians. That's who he's writing a letter to. That's who he's, he's focusing some of his effort at this time. I mentioned actually in small group that the letter writing is so much different in today's world versus this. When you read this letter and you think about receiving a letter from a loved one, you might look forward to hearing some things about how their life is going and, and what's happening. Uh, we don't see that very much here. Paul kind of scoots by himself very quickly, talks a little bit about himself, but quite frankly, his story is nothing to share. He's in prison. Times are hard. Anyway, let's talk about the good news, and that's Jesus. So we see him, Pivot also mentions saints. Um, in this context, when we hear, see this word used here, it's basically those folks, are, folks who are holy. These are people that are set apart. They are believers. They're holy because of their faith in Christ. They're not intrinsically holy. They weren't holy because of their own actions. They didn't earn this holiness. And they're not going to be able to get holier on their own. It's because of Christ alone. Their faith is a byproduct of God working in their lives. Same for my faith. Honest to goodness faith in Jesus Christ, the kind that changes your life and allows you to do the work of Christ, doesn't come from our ability to manifest that faith. That faith comes from God. That's the faith that's setting them as part of saints here. I know it can be confusing because in our world, we have saints that have been named saints by the Catholic Church and things like that. This would be different. I'm not to say that those saints wouldn't fall in line with why he's using the term saint here, uh, but these don't mean that these, they were a specific group of people that Paul had made saints or they had done, followed some ordered thing to be, become saints. He's just addressing the saved generally here as saints. And I find it interesting what he opens with. Kind of coming back to my <laughs> notion of how letters are different. Grace to you and peace from God. And to me, I note the lack of traditional well-wishing. He doesn't say, I hope this finds you well. I pray you're doing all right. How are the kids? None of that really matters to Paul. Are you suffering is, are the wheels coming off your life? Is everything coming apart? Well, so long as you've got the grace and peace of God, good, good for you. Now, that may seem like, well, that's 
crass and callous. But that's exactly where Paul's at. He's sitting in a place in his life in prison where he is 100% dependent on the grace of God begetting peace in his life. It's easy to be peaceful when everything in your life's going pretty well. You can sit on your porch on a sunny day and everything's fine and the bills are paid and nobody's sick and the kids are visiting or the kids have just left and you know, you're having a nice warm cup of coffee on a cool fall day and say, man, oh, this is what peace is. But when suddenly that house falls down or catches fire or someone gets in a car accident or cancer arrives, where did that peace go? Now, peace is fleeting. The peace that Paul's talking about here the grace and the peace is something deeper than that. His intro is all business. Regardless of what's happening, I want grace for you. Church, I'll say that to you today. I pray you'll pray that for me. Grace from God in Christ is the only hope for peace from God in Christ. This is a theme in Scripture in a time where there was a lot more suffering for their beliefs than we endure today. But this notion was peace that transcends understanding. How can you be at peace when the whole world is coming after you, trying to kill you because of what you believe? And the answer is, because I know how the story ends, I know what I'm here to do, and all this is naturally a byproduct and has been warned that it would come to me by my Savior. He told me this was going to happen. It's fine. They might be able to kill me. They could take all kinds of things from me, but that's not good. they can't steal my peace because my peace is of God that came from the grace of understanding what Christ did for me on that cross. This is not your standard opening to a letter. This is me talking to me as much as anything else. I don't, I don't write letters very often to begin with, but I don't think I've ever written a letter like this. I've never written a letter to a believer where in the letter I just shared the ins and outs of a very detailed gospel message, covering all kinds of bits and bobs about life and kind of generalities and how this needs to apply and why we bother. I've never, ever done that, but this is exactly what Paul's done. Grace and peace might seem a little bit crazy, but Paul knows what his letter will contain. We're going to go, th- go through this now over the next few weeks, um, but, but he sets the tone early that he wishes Christ to move. This isn't a letter. I want to, re- I want to reiterate this. This is not a letter that, to make them feel good, it, nor is it a letter to make them uh, act better. And we talk about this a lot. There is no desire by me, by Paul, to emulate Christian living. The goal is to have you live a Christian life, to know who Christ is, to depend on Him for the change, Him to take away the anxiety, the pain, and replace it with grace and peace that we can't quite understand. And when other people start to notice that there's been a change in our lives, we attribute it to God, to Christ's work on the cross alone. Nothing that I did. There's no secret here. I didn't pray extra hard and I got some some extra grace from God because of it. No, this is 100% from God. It is a free gift or it's not. And Paul is going to stress this. It is Christ alone. There is nothing that you're going to need outside of Jesus Christ to be able to have a grace-filled and a peaceful life. If you doubt it, just look in these first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, this letter is about Jesus and his work. Nothing is mentioned more here except for Christ Jesus. It's not about Paul. As I stand in front of you today, it's not about me. You know, we're in a new location. We've got a lot of great opportunities. We've got some, some new visitors walking in that live nearby. The things we wanted to, the desires we had as a church were to reach people in this area for Christ. Well, 
as God begins to move in that, let it be known this isn't about me or Mike or Leah or anybody. It's not about the church or the location. We're grateful for all that. This is all aspects of grace, but it is about Jesus Christ. That good news will, will be around long after we've all turned to dust and this building has fallen down on itself. That sacrifice is the grace we need for peace in God. There is nothing else required. Nothing else required. And the reason Paul's starting with that is because everything that he's going to talk about will be built on that notion. Paul's role is to present that good news. He doesn't represent the good news. He's just presenting it. it Paul is an amazing Bible hero in many regards. I stand in awe of what Paul was able to comprehend, put down on paper as the Holy Spirit moved through him. It's fantastic. But Paul will be the first to tell you and does a number of times in Scripture that he is no good. (laughs) He's a rotten person. He does the things he hates and he hates the things that he does. He's got thorns in his side that won't be removed, that can't be removed, and he's learning to live with them. And he still gives credit and praise and worship to God because the thorn in his side does not matter. There is no peace except from grace and that through Christ. So, points to ponder. When we talk about, even in this brief intro, what could we ponder in two verses? Our faith is in Christ alone. We don't need faith in anything else. There's no faith in our goodness or the goodness of our family or friends. There's no faith in my pastor to somehow intervene for me spiritually. That is not where my faith resides. It is in Christ alone. And thus, our salvation, our saving is by Christ alone. There is no way to be saved except by Christ. All grace, every bit of it, of course the grace of salvation, but just the, the, the notion of grace and understanding of grace that begets this notion of peace is through Christ alone. And finally, eternal peace is with Christ alone. Let's dive into those. If our faith is in Christ alone, and we say alone and we mean alone, then what Paul's pleading here is nothing but Christ. Now, that may seem a little counterproductive. There's plenty of folks that are going to talk about all kinds of things that you can do, along with Jesus, that are going to help you in your walk. This isn't to say that gathering, uh, singing songs together is bad or adds no value, but if the songs we sing ever plead anything but the blood of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, we are, we are taking a bad step in a bad direction. If we ever espouse that your good works combined with the works of Christ are what save you, that's incorrect. We do not see that in the Bible nor here in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul makes it very clear. All these spiritual gifts, all this outpouring, all this good work that comes is of the Spirit's work in your life, not inviting the Spirit in because of these good works. This is a tectonic shift that he's talking about. Even different from the Jewish culture in many regards, which was a series of scales and balances. This much bad, we have to do this much penitence and pay for that. And that's easy to grasp and and say, good, I I can measure out what I need to do to fix it. In this case, it's already been done. Paul's crediting God for his apostleship. I don't consider myself an apostle. I think that that office has been closed uh, fundamentally biblically. But This notion of, as I stand here today as a pastor of this congregation, it's only because of God's work in me. My ability to understand the word from a technical perspective, interesting. It saves nobody, including myself. Being able to pass the most difficult Bible quiz ever written, 
does not save you. It is God's work, Christ's work on that cross, and God with the Holy Spirit working in my life is the reason I'm here today. It's a commitment that I've made to God through Christ to do this work. Not because I'm good enough or smart enough. None of that matters. My ability to speak publicly is irrelevant when it comes to the work of Christ. And if we ever have doubts about that, look at the caliber of people, if you will, that God used in the Word. They were, by many regards, scumbags that necessarily weren't that good at doing anything useful. And God said, watch what I can do. Because I'm not worried about what the world says or where you were. I'm worried about and know where I'm going to take you. This was not of Paul, but only faith in Christ. If, you, if it feels, sounds like a broken record, like, man, this guy just, it's always, everything is about faith in Christ. Amen. Absolutely, 100%. If you leave here, and, and that's all you can remember is that the fact that apparently I just have to have Christ alone, and everything's going to be okay. Yes. That's it. That's it. That's all that it's ever been. I know we've liked to have muddied this up, but what Paul's talking about here is a long-winded letter in many regards, but all of it is based off of how can I know? What, what are the kinds of things that I would expect when I'm in Christ alone? Let me give you some examples. But having a, emulating a Christian marriage does not make it a Christian marriage. Only Christ can do that. And here comes our salvation by Christ alone. When we see, see saints used, as I mentioned before, think believers. These aren't special believers that have been promoted to sainthood by Paul due to actions or anything on their behalf. It doesn't mean that sort of thing. This is just people that believe. They are holy, and holy just means set apart. But their holiness, their set-apartness is not earned, is free. Now, this is crazy in any kind of economy anywhere else. A gift like this, eternal life, doesn't, can't be free. What do I need? I need to do something. I've got to offer something. I need to pay something. And if you're saved, it's because of your faith from God in Christ alone. And this your faith part becomes the part that a lot of times we want to pay. Okay, I'll believe in Jesus then. And I'll, I'll live a good life and I'll work really hard to show that I do believe in Jesus. And what we see here from Paul is the faith itself isn't of us. We get to participate in it. I do believe in Jesus, but it did not come from me one day saying to myself, you know, I was dead, but I'm just going to be alive now. I've chosen to be alive, and now I believe. No, I needed to be resurrected in spirit, and God did that. That, too, is credit to God. And the reason that this is so important is this last sentence. It's from God, it's to God, and it's through God. It's always been about God and his glory. If the faith is mine, then I'm due a little bit of credit. If it's my faith when I stand before God and he says, hey, I did everything required, like, well, almost, but I believed. It was my faith. There's going to be people that do stand before God and they're going to have that attitude. My faith was strong. We talked about this a few messages ago. And what God says to them is, depart from me, I never knew you. But listen, I did all these things. I did them in your name. I talked the talk you know, I walked the walk, but I never believed. And now I'm angry because I thought I'd earned it. You cannot earn it. If you're hearing my words today and you think you're squared away because you did something or you said something or you prayed something, that's not enough, to put it simply. There needs to be Christ in your heart, a change that comes from Christ alone. That change comes from hearing this news, the good news of the word, studying that, 
praying about it. And what we find, of course, more times than not, is God moves in lives. Why? Because of grace. We don't deserve it. The faith that I have in Christ isn't due to me. It's a gift. It's free. And that grace, there is no grace but the grace of Christ. We can talk about grace on a day-to-day basis, right? Somebody shows up late to a meeting and you say, oh, it's no big deal. That's grace. But we all know after a couple of those, we're out of grace, right? I need you to be on time, right? If you ever want to know how far grace can be stretched, stop paying your mortgage, <laughs> right? Oh, maybe a month or two and they'll, hey, well, we're trying to work it out for you. But if you just don't do anything after a while, they show up and they're like, we're going to take this house now. The grace is over. Well, that wasn't very good grace. That's true. Our grace is fleeting. Our grace is usually built off of rules and things that you can do to earn the grace. The grace is fine until it's not, until you don't pay your payments for three months, and then there's no grace anymore. You've used up the grace. The grace is finite. This grace is different. This grace, if you would, would be like a big G grace, the grace of Christ. We can forgive people, but we cannot erase sin. And this is an interesting notion, because if somebody does wrong to me, some regards, it's a disservice if I say, hey, I forgive you. And uh, also, there's just, that's, that's it. After I forgive you, you're free and clear of that. Well, that's just not true. Sin is sin against God. And I may forgive them, but I don't have the capacity to erase and blot out that sin. Christ has paid for all the sins of the elect. Everybody that God has chosen to save, Christ has covered that. But I can't do it. So when we talk about forgiveness and we talk about the grace of Christ, even when we're wronged and we choose to forgive, it does us well to say, I still want you to to know who Christ is. I want to forgive you, but only Christ can forgive you eternally, right? That's where true forgiveness lies. It's not a, it's not a a, a temporary, it's okay. It's not a big deal kind of forgiveness, but I don't even remember you doing it. The Bible says that separates our sin as far as the East is from the West. Well, that's infinitely separated. That means God does not see the sin in me. Christ has borne that sin. When, you, when I forgive somebody, I don't have that luxury. I don't remove it from everybody's memory. Everybody still knows this thing happened. I'm just not going to hold a grudge. That right, the ability to remove the sin, is reserved for the judge alone. Interestingly enough, we have a construct like this. If I commit certain crimes against somebody, even if they choose not to press charges or whatever, the government will still do it. If I murder somebody and their family say, hey, we forgive them, the, the government will say, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to try you for murder because we as a society have decided that's intolerable. The forgiveness is irrelevant. You've got to pay for those sins. This is very much what happens in God's economy. You've got sin. I can't be close to God. Christ as a mediator gives us the grace to have that gone from us for good and all. Even if all the people stand around and say, hey, I don't hold those sins against them anymore. The sin they committed against me, God says, that's fine. But the sins that they've committed are still borne by them. Your forgiveness, noted. The sin is still there. That's why we need Christ. And because we have Christ as the judge appointed by God, this is right in the scripture alone, he bears the sin of his elect. So the folks that are going to be saved, Christ is paying for all those sins committed against God, committed against others. All that has been taken care of. Christ alone does that. My work, my penance, my repentance, needed, necessary, good thing to do, does not blot my sin out, only the work of Christ. And our fourth point here is eternal peace is with Christ alone. 
Does anybody here enjoy strife? I've worked with some people in the past that I think do. They kind of like people, like they always want a little bit of a frenzy around a workplace, and they kind of want everyone on edge. They just don't like it peaceable. I don't enjoy strife. I don't like when somebody's upset with me or angry with me or annoyed with me. I want to make it right. It's a strong desire to do that. Nearly everyone wants peace. But the peace of God is true peace. This is eternal peace. This is peace that can't be taken away. It can't be blotted out. It can't be affected by day-to-day happenings. So if you live a life and you're like, well, I'm I'm at peace until everything goes wrong and then there is no peace, I encourage you to find this peace. Pray for this peace. We want to talk about this stuff with y'all. There is no peace but the peace of God. Now, when we look at Christ, he had moments where he was, you know, sweating blood in the garden, praying for the cup to pass. This is when he's about to endure the wrath of God, right? That is um, an incalculable burden to bear, that he bared, that he bore on that cross. But even then, what we hear from him is, but not my will, not my will, but yours be done. There's peace in knowing that God's will will see Christ through. And Christ's work and God's will will see us through. This doesn't mean that like, oh no, uh, someone comes in and they're going to do some terrible things. It's like, no worries, I've got the peace of God, right? Like nothing can harm me. And I'm not going to worry about paying my bills or taking care of anything. And I'm just going to let the eternal peace wash over me and do nothing. No, there's work to be done unequivocally. But when things don't go the way we might want them to go or things that are happening to us that feel like it's, it could crush and destroy our spirit, this is exactly where we have this bedrock of peace, a peace that came from the work Christ did on the cross that is now being done in us with the Holy Spirit, knowing that God has got us taken care of. He is in charge and is never caught unawares. That is the eternal peace. So what about us? What about us? Are we saved by Christ alone? As you hear these questions, you hear me talking. Does this ring true? Or are you reliant on, a, the? you know, well, I was in the sixth grade and I said the prayer and they baptized me, so I guess I'm saved. Yeah. This is not a good time to guess. You either know or you don't. And if you don't know, let's help you know. Is there anything that we add to our salvation equation? I was, I've been guilty of this for a long time in my life. I liked knowing that I was saved by Christ, but I wanted to throw a few other things in there. Uh, you can have this part of my life, God, but I'm going to manage this part myself. Uh, you know, I'm not quite ready to give this up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll deal with this and I won't repent of that, but I'll, I'll get this squared away in my time. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as Jesus and. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I also have to say at least 15 minutes of prayers a day. I believe in Jesus, but if I don't give money to somebody or something, uh, I'm not going to get the blessings that I need. I believe in Jesus, but I also have a series of oils and things that I know are part of my salvation. I'm here to tell you, Christ alone saves you. That's all you need. If you're coming here every now and again, we do communion. We'll have a time of offering. We sing and worship. These are all wonderful things, but these are all based and born out of our salvation that exists already. These acts that we're doing, my standing here today does not save me preaching the good word, and somebody says, I believe and I'm coming to Christ. I can't claim that as merit when I go. That'll be thrown down. If a crown is presented to me for somebody's salvation, I throw it at the feet willingly of Christ. This is yours too. Everything good in my life is because of that. There's nothing I add to my salvation equation. 
is the grace in our life from Christ alone. In our world today, it's really easy to depend on lots of other people's grace, our own grace, decisions that we've made in the past, investments that allow us to retire early, all kinds of things like this feel like grace until they're gone. And you can, I could probably throw a rock outside and hit 15 people that felt like everything was taken care of and man, everything was going great. I'm so blessed. And then the next day, all gone. Everything's a mess. Unbelievable diagnosis. I got robbed. My car broke down. My house caught fire. My kids are sick. Now where's the grace? Where's the grace now? Things were going so good and now they're not. This grace, this is eternity. This is knowing, confidence, assured that no matter what happens, nothing can steal us away from the Father. We are saved forever. We persevere as saints. And lastly, do we know and share the peace of God? If we don't know the peace of God, let's get that fixed. And if we don't share the peace of God, let's fix that too. But if you start at the bottom of this list and it's no, 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 yes, maybe that first one's a no. Seriously. These questions are in this specific order because if any of these are a no, stop there. Stop there and sort that out. It's a reason that Paul starts right here too. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints here in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he even talks at all, he wants to set the stage. I'm an apostle of Jesus because of the will of God. I'm writing to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Jesus. Grace to you, peace to you from the Father and Jesus. If, if, you, if the letter got cut off from there, that'd probably been a pretty good letter. Excellent, Paul. Thanks for the letter. So our call to action. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know who he is, if this is news to you, if you thought it was a series of scales and balances and you're trying to live a good life and earn your way in, I've got great news. You can stop all that right away. It's all been taken care of. Christ on the cross said it is finished when he died. He meant that. He meant that. Second, get your peace from Jesus Christ. Stop chasing the world. Stop trying to think about, if I could just get this to there, then we'll be okay. No, you're not ever going to be, it's never going to be enough. There's always going to be something else that the world comes and clobbers you with. Just talk to anybody that's lived. When I was a young kid, I'd think, well, the world's pretty good. About every 10 years past that, I'm just, oh my goodness. I don't know if we're going to make it out of here alive sometimes, right? The world seems to be slowly slipping away from anything that I would call good. And some of that, I think, is you just live long enough that you see that the world is not a peaceable place. The world wants war. The Bible tells us this. Third, share that good news with others. If you've got faith in Christ and you're at peace in Christ, share that good news. That makes a difference. When people are wringing their hands and sweating bullets, not because they're hot up here, but they're like, and they're like hey, I, I want to invite you to come to church. It's really changed my life. I got such peace. Oh gosh, what time is it? I gotta be, who's going to be like, hey, that's the kind of peace I want. And they're like, no, I can get that kind of peace by working too hard. I, I don't understand what you're talking about, right? Sharing good news while we're in the midst of a whole bunch of turmoil from the world doesn't really do a lot of good because people see right through that. They know it's not true. You're talking about grace and peace, but you don't really have it. And lastly here, join a church and thrive. Paul is writing this letter. It's easy to overlook this, not see the forest trees. He's writing a letter to a church to encourage them to be a church. These things, this isn't a letter to a person saying, hey, go into your closet and sort all this out. Now, we see calls for this with regards to prayer. But when it comes to worshiping together, 
Paul's writing a letter to a church, and he's saying, yeah, y'all work together on this. You can hold each other accountable. You can confess your sins one to another. You can ensure that people have questions about marriage. You can give them guidance. And then as they struggle through that notion, which we're all going to struggle through life together, there's hope for you together because of the grace of Christ and the peace of Christ. It's a game changer. Let's pray.